When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And this is episode four of my LSQ podcast. Thanks so much for pressing play. Uh, This episode features interviews with Tegan Quinn and Sarah Quinn, known collectively as Tegan and Sarah. Uh, But I wanted to interview them separately. So that's what you'll hear conversations recorded the same day, um, one on the west side of Los Angeles and one on the east side. It is a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two Quins. Um, But before we get into the new interviews, I want to play you a bit of a 2007 conversation I had with Tegan and Sarah when Rolling Stone sent me uh, to visit them in Victoria, British Columbia, just as they were getting ready to release their album, The Con, which, of course, um, became one of their most important and beloved LPs. They, in fact, toured late last year celebrating the 10th anniversary of that album and both talked about how uh, that tour helped them to kind of reconnect with some of what they loved about playing shows earlier on in their career. Anyway, we'll get to those new conversations coming up, but right now let's listen to a little bit of Tegan and Sarah talking about what makes their approaches to songwriting different, and you hear Sarah speaking first. Listening to our songs is like looking in the mirror. Like, I don't, I don't, I see myself in my songs so much that it's impossible for me to think Tegan sounds like me. She doesn't. She sounds like Tegan. Like, I do not. I would never mistake. Just like I would never see Tegan and be like, you really look like me. My God, it's uncanny. Like, I look at her and she might as well look like you. I mean, she just looks not like me. I mean, she literally does not look like me to me. So when I hear her song, I'm like, that's your song. I don't hear me in your song. But there'll be these little tiny moments that, like, I'll hear her voice, like, on my voicemail or something like that. I'll be like, why did I leave this message for myself? I don't remember doing that. And I'll be like, that's Tegan. Yeah. You know? And I'll have those moments, and sometimes it's the same way with music. Like, for the most part, I, I think to myself, wow, I've made a band with someone who I really respect who doesn't sound anything like me, and we just work together, and it sounds awesome. And that must sound so insane to the average person, because they're like, it's basically like you, you, you're two people, you're the same person twice, you know? Like, it's, <laughs> like, it's weird, and it sounds so silly to say, but it's like, I literally might as well be in a band with, like, Nick Cave. I mean, like, it's like she is a different person. <laughs> like, I see her music in a, in an equation. I, I, when I listen to my songs, it's like I literally get a visual of my song. So, how, what do you see? I mean, can you even begin to describe what you see the difference as being? I, I can't describe it any more than 
I think of this, I think of music, which is so funny because I hate math and I'm terrible at it, but I see music as a, as a mathematical equation. I do. Like, I can literally, my songs have, it's like I can see them as a math equation. And my equations are slightly different, but they're essentially the same type of equation. Like, I know, and I can hear it in certain songs. Like, for me, um, back in your head to me is the same equation that I used to write, like, Monday, Monday, Monday on If It Was You. Like, I can see the equation. Like, I know it's the same type of thing. I don't understand Tegan's equations. Like, I don't. I just think about them as an equation, and I'm like, it's different. It's just not the same what about if for, But what about from an emotional standpoint? From an emotional standpoint, her writes so, like, so different. Yeah, like, I mean, like, floor plan makes no sense to me. Like, I enjoy playing it right now because it's challenging because I'm playing a lot of different keyboard parts that I didn't write. Sarah wrote them, so again, not the same style of writing. Like, everything's in an offbeat, and I'm just like, ugh. You know, like, because I am an offbeat, so I tap on the offbeat. That's my rhythm. That's so, like, but I don't play the offbeat. So right. I play on the beat and tap her offbeat. Sarah writes her songs so that her keyboard parts are coming on the offbeat. Like, it's like, I've played Walking with the Ghost. Well, Ted and I, our guitar player, estimated, like, close to 200 times in the last, like, you know, probably year and a half or whatever, well, before we stopped touring. So 200 times I've played that song, probably. I cannot, if you put a pen and paper down in front of me and then you put a gun into my head, I could not write out the lyrics, even though they're simple. I couldn't write out the lyrics. That's ridiculous. I couldn't break it down structurally for you, so I couldn't tell you, like, does it start, like, walk, like, I couldn't tell you verse, chorus, verse, chorus, like, the song makes no sense to me. Sarah's been playing Monday, Monday, six years, five years, five and a half years, potentially, can't remember the words. Like, things like that, like little basic things like where it's just like, I don't understand the way that she writes, it doesn't connect, like it doesn't make sense. Walking the Ghost to me is madness. It's like Rubik's Cube. It's like two minutes of Rubik's Cube on stage. It's like, hey, are you having fun? Okay, put your guitar down, I'm going to do a Rubik's Cube. You're going to do that while everybody stares at you. So a thousand yeah, people are I mean, staring at me and I'm like, about like the type yeah. of like the... The fact that you have to play each other's songs for a minute. When I listen to it, it's like that. It's like it doesn't make sense in my head. I can't like I just. But have you ever listened to one of each other's songs where you felt like afterward you understood the other person better? I don't want to understand her better. I listen to her songs every night, and I do think like like when we're Isn't she a dream date? I mean, she's so sweet. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to project on her. That's not like we don't have that kind of. It's unspoken. I know how she's feeling. I know exactly what she's up to. She lies to me, and I know. Like it's unspoken. It's like she can look at me, and I'm like, I'm lying. No, but like without even speaking, I know who she is. She knows who I am. We know each other. That's the only weird twin thing that we have. Is it's completely impossible to understand or explain. Well, when I met with them in 2007, I had been a fan of Tegan and Sarah's um, since their 2004 album, So Jealous, and it's been so great to watch their career really blossom in the years since, as they had a major commercial breakthrough with their 2013 album, Heartthrob, around that same time. Uh, They contributed the theme song to the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome, you know the one. Um, And in 2016, they put out a really great collection called Love You to Death, After touring for that, as I noted earlier, they did just recently the 10th anniversary tour for the con. And now, as we met in early January, they were saying that they plan to take the next year or two off from the road and aren't going to be worrying anytime soon about starting to work on their next album. Instead, they're looking forward to exploring other creative endeavors and uh, to their lives at home and even more so to delving into work for the Tegan and Sarah Foundation, which they started last year uh, as an organization to help fight for health, economic justice, and representation for LGBTQ girls and women. 
So let's start with this Tegan interview, and I just want to explain. You'll hear us reference the lost tapes a couple of times. What what that means is that uh, I had a technical malfunction for the first 10 minutes of our conversation, and it was lost forever. Um, but we started basically um, when I asked Tegan just what's been on her mind lately, and she began to explain why she kind of wants to take a little bit of time off from the road and, and from recording new music. So uh, let's join right there. I definitely want to chill, you know, and, and chill in our world is never going to be what probably most people think chill is because we run a foundation and we're going to, you know, probably, you know, take on some other kinds of creative projects that aren't just music related. And, and then on top of that, write and record another record. So there's, it's, it's not me just laying on that couch, you know, for the next two years, but I would like to do a little more of laying on that couch than I probably would have at any other point in our career. And I, that is the benefit of being, you know, 20 years into a career that's had lots of ups and downs, but has mostly just been a, a really nice slow tick upwards, is that we've kind of earned some time off, but also, like, we've earned the right to just chill. We've earned the right to trend down. I was about to go on a rant about how last night at dinner I was actually saying it's an interesting world we live in now and so unlike the one we lived in even just a few years ago that I can, as an artist, I can actually see that I'm less popular every day because I'm not promoting myself. I'm not <laughs> on social media. We're not doing interviews. We're not being played on radio. So every day you become less recognizable as a brand. Yeah. And that there's this new thing where it's just you're supposed to be on brand. It's and so dark. Marketing. Though. It's awful. And I refuse, to, I refuse to be cynical about it, but I also refuse to be... Um, manipulated, but I also am not going to like just shut off either. Like I'm, go I'm just going to spend the next two years figuring out what balance works for us, you know, and be okay with it. But it is a fascinating thing where the first six months when you get off the road, the air comes out a bit. Like I don't know how else to say say it. Like you just you go back to being. And this is just for us. This only applies to us because we're not famous. You know? Right. Like, we're well-known in certain circles. Well, but in certain circles, right? <laughs> and with an enormous amount of explaining, I can probably talk almost anyone into understanding who we are, right? Like, you know, <laughs> do you know that movie? Everything is awesome. Lego, you know, I can talk almost anyone into eventually going, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. I do know who you guys are. <laughs> but in general, we're not famous. And so I'm applying this only to people like us who are not famous but are well-known in certain circles. Within a few months, you are basically... A, a normal person again. I'm pretty much unrecognizable at this point, you know, unless I'm with Sarah, unless I'm at a venue, unless I'm around people around my age or younger, I can blend in anywhere. I'm anonymous everywhere. And that's really different than the last two years where I'm always within two miles of a venue that's been promoting me and my face for the months leading up to it. And I go from being a nobody to like everywhere I go, people are asking for photos and, and autographs and following me and I have security. And then within a few months, I'm just, I was at CVS and Whole Foods and doing this this morning. But when was, I'm intrigued because when was the first time when that's, when did that first start happening? You know, during what phase of, of Tegan and Sarah's catalog did you start finding that more and more if you were on tour and but trying to go about your normal day yeah. someone would be gawking at you or a fan, you could sense that a fan was too shy to come up but they were nearby you right. know when did that start to happen because obviously yeah it, that's kind of cool and weird thing it, to it's always get been, used to it's always been cool but also very weird yeah. it's never never not been weird um, I think in 2004 when So Jealous came out it was 
obviously the first time we had a lot of radio and so as 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 our sort of star rose at college radio a certain age group became very familiar with who we were um and also that is when myspace really took off so i just think like online right. we became just a bigger band because of that so we became more recognizable we also had like asymmetrical mullets so we were like hard to blend in you know what i mean <laughs> like it wasn't like you know when sarah and i were together even even if people didn't know who we were, there was something about us. Like people would be like, "You must be in a band," right? Right. So, I think it started then. Um, obviously, Heartthrob would be the peak of of recognizability. Like everywhere we went. But I gotta say, you know, I know that you're both, um, and I say this as a compliment, mm. quite neurotic people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and most neurotic people, you know, don't really like uh, being recognized. But also, it's a hard thing. I'm guessing. I mean, once in a while, I'll get sort of voice recognized oh for something. Oh, my some- God, yeah, totally. But, but it's a hard thing not to be, to, to be like, wow, cool. Yeah. And then it must be weird to get used to it, right? I mean, and to, and to sort of like it if you're a neurotic person because you're just like, what's wrong with me? Why do I like this? <laughs> I, well, I'll say two things. The first is that, and it was Sarah that put this together, um, and when she started talking about it years ago, it kind of blew my mind. Um, we've always been looked at we're twins and not like new twins that like you know where it's like more common now because of in vitro and whatever like we're like 80s twins yeah so we've been looked at our whole lives and and we're not like i think we're it i mean i think we're kind of like unique looking like we're not Mm. like traditional looking in in lots of ways so especially in certain eras of our lives we were really like you know, as kids, we were like boys, but we were girls, so people gawked but, at us. And but I mean, fucking adorable. We I'm were, sure. No, no, no. We were completely adorable. We were very stylish. Had a very right. like I you mean, know that's hot, like cool adorable like twins mom is, who dressed yeah. us really cool. But then you know, we were like punk. We were ravers. We were skaters. Like we always sort of like had a very visual look to us that drew attention to us, which is odd because we're very awkward and neurotic, and we're actually really shy, and we're both. We're, I think we're both extroverts, but we introvert really comfortably, and, and probably more than me, Sarah is probably more of an introvert, and it's a weird career choice to be entertainers when you're actually kind of shy and awkward and neurotic, but, you know, the art obviously drove us, but uh, yeah, I think we we deal with it because it's always kind of been the case, even before we musicians, people would look at us, and I, I'll, I'll be uh, completely sincere when I say this, it never pleases me or makes me feel great if someone recognizes me in public places. Like, if I'm alone, it's fine. But, like, if I'm at a restaurant or I'm in a cinema or um, and someone stops me to take a photo, I always feel horrible afterwards mm. because I feel like, oh, God, like, you know, if people, like, turn and look, they're, I'm like, oh, they're thinking, what? who is that? Why are they taking a photo with that person? You know, right. like, and I've had to, like, quiet that inner voice because I'm like, you're an asshole, quiet inner voice. Um, <laughs> but sometimes it is. It's like embarrassing. Sometimes there's just inappropriate times. Yeah. I've had to learn boundaries. Like we've started to say no in certain places and we've been really vocal about it. Like I will not take a photo with you outside my house or in my apartment building. You know, yeah. people will stop me sometimes and be like, I cannot believe we live in the same building. And I'm like, yep. And then, you know, inevitably they're like, can we get a photo? And I'm like, no, I live here. It's insane. I can't take a photo with you. If you're outside our hotel, like a won't. Yeah. You know, there's certain places where you're like, this is truly my home, even if it's just for the night and it's not appropriate. Then there's these like amazing moments that happen. Yeah. Like I took some heat for something I had said a couple years back about taking a risk with Heartthrob, knowing that we might lose fans and I didn't care. That, that as a creative artist, 
I had to challenge myself. I'd been in a band for so long, and Sarah and I would just end up not being in a band if we didn't challenge ourselves. But now you can hear the nuance of my voice. You can hear the emotion in my voice. You can see how sincere I am when I'm saying that. In print, I sounded like an asshole. And some fans like really took offense to it online, and I was venting about it one day. And in the middle of venting about it, an older guy, like you know, probably in his 60s, came up to me and interrupted. I was talking to my uh, mom's partner, and he, we were in an airport, and he said, I'm so sorry to interrupt. You know, I'm from Canada, and I just, I, it was so cool looking over and seeing you here. You're like Canada's jewel, you know, or whatever, like not jewel the artist, like, you know, okay. like a gemstone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And he said, yeah, and my daughter performed in choir, 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 and you guys had her come up and perform on the Junos. Junos are like the Grammys in Canada. And she was so moved, but also just as a parent, I want to tell you like what an influence you've had on her. You guys are a tremendous, you know, power and, and as women, you're you know, you've used your power for good and you're so strong and so talented. And I just you know, he went on this whole thing and then he was like, Anyway, I didn't want to bug you, I just wanted to tell you and you know, I turned to my mom's boyfriend afterwards and I was like, That was so cool. That was so nice. If if most of our transactions were like that, I probably would enjoy it more. Mostly it's like People walk up, they don't even say hi, they come out of nowhere, it scares the living shit out of you, and then they're like, can I get a selfie? And then you take a selfie with a stranger, which is weird, because your face is so close to theirs, and then you look awful, because you're not wearing any makeup, and it's like 8.30 in the morning, and you're at an airport, and then they just are like, bye, and you're like, that was weird. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, you know, but I, I will say this, that like again, all it's taken is a couple months, and I basically will go so far as to say I just am rarely recognized. It's great. The trending down is awesome, I guess, oh, yeah. is my spin. Is that it's kind of fun to think like I'll just go back to kind of being a nobody for the next couple of years. Yeah. And that's great. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline feels awesome was there ever an artist like obviously you guys have been doing this since you were 14 and and you were started doing it as soon as you started kind of getting into music but in the early days um was there an artist that if you had been in the in, in a room with them it would have been difficult to resist geeking out going up and 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 geeking out on them a little bit or did, have you had did you ever do that at any point i would never have done it as a young person I probably wouldn't have gotten the confidence to introduce myself to people until we were like well into our 20s. Like we played festivals and opened for bands that like I've we've opened for people that I never really even talked to. But I'd say like I mean now I'll geek out all the time. I constantly go up to people and it's always embarrassing. Sarah and I kind of do it to each other. I, we've kind of stopped doing it cuz now we're now that we're a bigger band it feels like super mean to do to one another, but I remember I can't remember which festival it was, but some festival, it might have been Lollapalooza, I can't remember, but um seeing Carrie Brownstein and Sarah was so obsessed. And I was like, go over and say something. Like, why wouldn't you say something? She's going to know who we are. Like, So Jealous was really big at the time. I was like, Walking with the Ghost is everywhere. Go and say something. And she was like, absolutely not. And we were walking by, and I pushed her into Carrie. Like, not, <laughs> she didn't hit Carrie. She didn't run into Carrie, but pushed her into... Close enough. Like a sphere, that, yeah. yeah, like the, into her orbit. There was no walking away from it. Like Sarah then had to commit and, and introduce herself. And uh, it was really embarrassing. And it was, but you know, we did, we did that for years to one another because, I, you know, it would never happen. We would never say hello to people we admired. 
Um, and now I go out of my way uh, to say something, whatever size of band or artist, or and I especially if they're not a big famous band or you know like at festivals, I try to have like the energy of like come and say hi to us, talk to us, and I introduce myself to artists, especially female artists or queer identified artists, because we never had anyone reach out to us. We never had any mentors. Yeah, we I was going to ask anyone. about that. You know, regarding Carrie and, and Slater Kinney in general. I mean there were so few examples of like queer visibility at that yeah. point yeah. when you were a kid that I mean hardly any examples beyond that that yeah. were well, out they, they were like massive like Melissa Etheridge or Katie Lang or right. Ani DeFranco um, but yeah there wasn't a lot of queer yeah, few people and far in, between our, where, in our age group right? Um, and we never met any of them Yeah, never have had a conversation with any of them about what their experiences were like and we were obscure nobodies so that makes sense but then as we got bigger like, I literally met Melissa Etheridge a couple months ago. I've been making music for 20 years. Wow. I've never spoken to Anya Franco. You know, we got compared to her for, like, a decade, um, which I felt so bad about. Not because they were comparing us to Anya Franco, but I was like, poor Anya Franco getting compared to this little irritating band from Canada or And whatever. the only, I mean, and it's a valid comparison sonically. Yeah, in the early part of our career, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But um, still, I was embarrassed because I was like, she probably has no idea who we are, but if she ever did see the comparison it must be so annoying and, and now I feel so sad because like how sad like why you know like we had no one we had no mentors we had no one men men we had men we had like bands like the killers and Ryan Adams and Neil Young but like no women none. yeah and now I feel like we're almost we're almost um like now it's we act so creepy like I'll just go introduce myself to people like I met Grace Mitchell the other day I was at an event and I just like pushed my way into a conversation was like I just wanted to introduce myself and say you're awesome because like I just wish anyone, anyone, yeah, had, would have like. It's, but it is as you as you know as you said in the portion of the interview lost to time. Um, <laughs> it everything's so different now. Yeah, and you know even just a year ago, I know that that we both contributed to Jen from Bleached's fanzine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, writing on the subject of you know sort of like why do we keep having to talk about. Yeah. being women in music, yeah. that talking about it in and of itself is irritating. And with that said, we're talking about it right now. But, you know, the interesting thing to me, obviously, about what you wrote was was expressing clearly how frustrating over the years it's been to always have lesbian appended to a description of the band yeah. as if that's a relevant fact about yeah. the music that these humans are making. Or woman, or twin, or sister. I mean, I'm, I'm, I would go on record and say that... Yeah, the twin thing, too. You Jesus. could not find an article... Or it would be such a small percentage of articles that have not mentioned our gender, our sexuality, or the fact that we're siblings in the headline or the first line of the article. Right. And... But isn't it kind of a catch-22 because, as you're saying, you know, visibility is so important for especially other artists and young people to connect to... 100%. ...that it's sort of like, well, you don't want to be objectified that way by the powers that be, but also now more than ever, as you're saying, it's, it's important to 100%. build that community around these, sh these things that we share. Sure. Well, and I think as a successful, visible, powerful band now that, yeah, I'm like, that's just normal and I'm accustomed to it and it's acceptable and it's great for visibility and representation. But for the majority, we'll call 15 of our 19 years as a professional band, yeah. all it did was um, marginalize yeah, us absolutely. And, 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 and subject us to restrictions. 
it, because the language is all used in a way, whether it's men or women writing about us, and it doesn't matter, you know, it really doesn't matter. It's, it, it was basically, whether it was blatant or coded, it said to the reader, this isn't for you. Right. It's a sort of, a woman in parentheses, if you like that sort of thing. It, it, there are literally articles where it says that. <laughs> a direct, That's fucked up. This is probably not for you unless you are a queer young woman in college. This is probably not for you if you're not gay. This is probably not for you. Like, literally. You know, enemy, I mean, as you, like, I'm sure are well aware of, like, I always, I always pick on both Pitchfork and, and enemy specifically because enemy during the So Jealous Con era said we were pretty good even though we hate cock. And Pitchfork called us tampon rock. And, oh, you know, God. Spin called us a Wicca fight folk n- nightmare. I mean, there are these words that, I mean, I, this, I, I devolve really quickly when I get talking about this stuff, but, and I think about in the last two decades, how many people have approached me on the street, men, and they start by saying, I love your band, I know you're not writing music for me. Or, I know it's so silly, like, my friends laugh at me, but I just love your band. Well, you know, and you're like, oh yeah. my god. Yeah. And they're just putting their foot in their mouth, they don't mean it. It's yeah. not supposed to sound the way that, it, or come off the way it does, but I think each of those is a small... What do they say about it? It's like it adds up. Like it's just like a little like death by a thousand cuts. Death by a thousand cuts. It's like gosh, we had to come. Our rebirth started not with the con, but with sainthood, but into heartthrob, where I shrugged off of over a decade of kind of like shame because I was like, oh, it's embarrassing to like us if you're a man. It's embarrassing if you're straight. It's not cool, you know, to like us. And we were just marketed and spoken about in such a different way than men and our peers or straight people and it was just it was hard not to feel embarrassed by that and a lot of our career has been spent feeling a bit dumbfounded by that narrative that again comes from the media this idea that we would just have a queer audience until heartthrob which was untrue we had a rock audience we had a guy audience we had a really mixed audience a lot of queer people didn't necessarily know about us or support like support we you know never were an outward advocate or any of the queer magazines, especially the ones that were male-focused, ever. You know, um, it's still to this day, like, you know, we don't, like, we've never been, like, been invited to those awards, like those gay, those big gay nights that happen, the big galas. Like, they give those awards to straight people. They invite Katy Perry, and they invite, you know, like, as gay artists, we just, like, literally, it was only the last couple years we even got invited, and so we spent so much of our career navigating this interesting territory where we were seen as this queer band, but then by the queer community, not queer enough and not necessarily the kind of queer that they wanted representing them. And then we break into the mainstream and we're too queer. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. like this really interesting But it's puzzle. one of these areas where I have a lot of faith in the young people yeah. to... Like, I mean, I'm older than you guys, but like seeing how much progress young, younger generations have made in 100%. forcing older people to reckon with their biases totally. is so cool. The world has changed completely. Yeah. Being an out queer female in our industry is a different game than it once was. I'm hopeful that, you know, 10 years from now, yeah. which is a long time, but hey, you know, we're looking back on last time we did this was 10 years <laughs> totally. ago, it feels like yesterday, yeah. that there are, you know, that... Uh, that young people nowadays are getting better at not looking for differences. Sure. Well, or cel- or they're getting really great at celebrating them. Right. Um, because now it's like to be different, original, or outside of the spectrum, or on the spectrum. All these things are wins now, you know, for a lot of people. But again, we're talking about 
a certain portion of the population, you know, that thinks that way. There's, it's still really tough to be different out there. So, but I, I, you know, we tour with a lot of female artists and a lot of queer artists, and and, and a lot of them are really young, and they are saying there's these incredible networks now. Right. You know, and you guys started obviously the Tegan and Sarah Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing in in part just to be able to be in communication with and getting everyone's perspectives since you're not so you're not in your own little corner wondering what everyone else is thinking yeah i mean the foundation kind of came about in part because of our experience in the music business but also because we've always been super political and all of a sudden we had all this access and visibility but also like you know brand i you know um uh, opportunities and like we just were like man if we can like redistribute some of the wealth that's coming to us into these social justice organizations in these areas that are really lacking and like in the LGBTQ community organizations that center you know uh, trans people or or women get a fraction of the funding mm-hmm. like literally a fraction and um, specifically we, we were really really focused on trying to fund organizations that do center women and have a focus on women of color and trans women because the numbers, I mean, it's just every dollar is split in a way that it's just almost nothing is getting down to them. And um, so definitely using that power, using that visibility became like a no-brainer. It was like, obviously, while people still care about us and while we have this opportunity, we're going to use it, you know, we can raise a lot more money than just you know, trying to raise it at a concert and then giving it to an organization. Like having legit, le- legitimizing our giving is basically why we started the foundation because it, now we can go to people and say, no, no, don't just give us a thousand dollars, give us ten thousand dollars. Right. Because but also, even you know, last year I, I was I was thrilled to be able to come to sort of inaugural event you guys had. Yeah. Here in L.A. Yeah. with. And and some of the speakers who do research on issues that are of concern True. to LGBTQ people. And that information, you know, I remember you guys saying it's just so interesting to get because there's so little research and yeah. outreach and polling even being done to see what the concerns are. Oh, yeah. Well, it's so sad. I mean, when you read those articles that talk about like like all the health research we always read, not just queer people, but just it's, it's all based on men. <laughs> right. So it's like so like women. Yeah. Like ugh, there's just so so much to do. I mean, we're, we're biting off the LGBTQ stuff because it relates so deeply to us and, and we really feel like we can help. It's like, you know, our niche. But. Um, yeah, when it comes, I mean, the foundation's focusing a lot on health because, I mean, there's never been a census done just for women in our community. How incredible would that be if we could all come, you know, it's one of our goals is to try to get every LGBTQ organization to use their mailing list to reach every LGBTQ identified uh, woman in, in the country to find out how do they vote? What do they, how much money do they make? You know, to help figure out where to, help, to where we can focus our energy to help people. Yeah, I mean, uh, and we could just focus on the foundation we could just quit Tegan and Sarah and we still wouldn't have enough time in the day you know there's just so much work to be done so it's given us a lot of um it's given us a boost you know personally to have this to focus on and um I don't know like there's so many questions that come up in my mind like how do we battle the next fight whatever it is you know because we always take time off it's not new we always take you know about 18 months off we want to stretch that and maybe try to take two years off the road but it's not me laying on my couch it's it's we want to focus that time and figure out a way to maximize what we've accomplished and and make as many inroads and and take as many steps as we can to to 
really push the foundation forward. But the foundation represents us, like not just the band, but us as people. So I'm hoping that there'll be such um, growth that will happen over the next couple of years. It will influence our music and it'll, you know, it'll really allow us to create something original and new and exciting. And, you know, our worst fear is to become that band that puts out a record that you're like, well, I love them. So I guess I'll just... <laughs> hang out and see them and well I guess I'll stream this once because they're my used to be my favorite band I mean I want to make music that excites people I want to find new fans too you know and I don't think if we just sat down and wrote a record right now I could do that I don't believe I don't believe that and uh, I, I want to have all these life experiences and all these conversations and use this access we have to really inspire me as a person to, to make great music again and uh there are really amazing things happening in music too, and there's a lot of really incredible artists who are. Yeah, LGBTQ who are some of your women. favorite young artists? Well, like we toured with Japanese Breakfast and and met Mitski this year, and I think both are incredible. And you know, talked about Bleached. I think that they're wonderful. Um, you know, there's a couple artists from Australia that I'm really, in, uh, you know, inspired by young, you know, specifically we toured with Alex Leahy, who is an alternative rock artist who's doing really well there. Um, you know, a Canadian songwriter who, incredible story, you know, like was kind of always struggling to be a musician and then signed her deal, I think at like 35 and she's had like more radio success than we ever have. Up Wait, who's that? This is Rhea May. Okay. Um, Interesting. I haven't heard of her, but I'll Yeah, to... she's awesome. And she's writing like really great pop radio hits, you know, right. and doing really well in Canada. And uh, so I'm also like excited to kind of take a step back and see where all these artists go and see what they do. You know, a lot of them have been gracious enough to say that we've influenced them or we've um, helped to make their path a little easier than maybe ours was. Um, I also want to, like, let them inspire me, you know? And they have already, you know? Look, I think about, you know, Muna or Muna. Or how, mm. I don't know. Like, what an incredible band. What an incredible Speaking of Australians, ha- um, have you... Are you a Courtney Barnett fan? Yeah, I love yeah. Courtney. Uh, we, that's someone who we've stalked at festivals and we're too shy to say anything to she's you. quite shy yeah I could sense her our shy energy just ricocheting off one another and then we finally <laughs> went over and introduced ourselves after like too many of those experiences where I was like geez one of us has to say hello um, you know it's yeah, interesting it's just an because incredible crap of young but also some of these people I'm mentioning are not young but they're having success now and it's thrilling and I want to sit back and just enjoy that too like enjoy what's happening because I feel like we're in a sea of like negativity and the industry's dying and streaming's killing everyone and touring it's I mean festivals are going under because it's just too much touring now and too many festivals and I'm like ugh, it's really easy to be like oh my god I'm gonna go to university and do something else you know <laughs> and I don't I just put this on social media the other day I'm taking a step back personally from the internet in general um but I don't want people to think that I'm putting my, my head in the sand you know we're hard at work on creative stuff, on political stuff, on foundation stuff. And the internet and, makes you crazy. But it makes you crazy, and, it, and I think it, it defeats the purpose sometimes. It's educating you, but it actually exhausts you. And I can't think of anything worse than creatively giving in or doing the same old, same old, but also personally giving in and doing the same old, same old. Like, I want action items. I don't want to just tweet my outrage. It's not doing anything. It's making people feel really stressed out, and I think a lot of stressed out, anxious people follow us online, and I want to give them hope. I don't want to just make them feel frustrated. And we've walked and learned that it is a fine line between preaching and and upsetting people and inspiring people. But when you have hundreds of thousands of people who follow you, I mean, like, how many of those people are really watching or listening anymore? I mean, who is using social media? I don't know. But uh, I still am constantly, like, you know, finger over the, the click thinking... 
no, I'm not going to post that. Yeah. I, I don't know what to post. I don't know. I mean, I have these conversations. I have so many wonderful, 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 wonderful friends, allies, people who live in the world I live in. And I get talking to them about all this. Like, what do we talk about? Like, for example, I think Rhea Butcher and Cameron Esposito are both incredible, brilliant human beings, funny, awesome, creative, you know, um, and have wonderful voices online. They put a lot of content out there and they react and or not react, sorry, they respond, they react, they put stuff out. It's great. It's amazing. It's like they've made real change in moments uh, that mattered, but they're also just really funny, and they're, you know, just really great human beings. And I was having dinner with them recently, and we were talking about social media, and I left, and I was like, I hope they didn't think that I was, like, copping out. Like, you know, when I was like, I'm going to step back. You guys keep going to do what you're... I need to step back a bit. I don't know what to talk about. And I sat with that, and I thought about it a lot, and then I spent the holidays with all my muggles, all my human friends, yeah. you know, who are just normal people, like social workers and doctors and, and teachers. And they're like, oh, you still use Twitter? Like, you know, like I, I have to remember too, like I'm so hyper-focused on my life and my world and being a public person I, that I'm, I constantly have to remind myself that this is not what the average person is thinking right, about. Right, Twitter is not real life. Yeah, it's not. And also, what's also not real life and is not possible for most people, like my girlfriend is a muggle, she doesn't have time to read 25 articles a day about anything. She has a job. <laughs> She's busy. She has hundreds and hundreds of emails at her job she has to read. She's not when I'm like, did you check out this New Yorker article? Did you check out this cut, <laughs> this article? It's really interesting. Cat person, yeah, come on. Yeah, She's just like, yeah, I'm going to try to read two books this year, you know. And <laughs> I don't drive. So I'm in a car with strangers all the time because I use car sharing services. And I ask them all the time really basic questions to try to understand what they're doing, what they're thinking. I don't want to ask leading questions. I'm not like, do you have time to read the New York Times, like, <laughs> asshole? <laughs> like, no, I'm like, you know, naturally we'll get into conversations and try to get an understanding of what they're thinking about, what they're reading, what they're doing. And I just believe that most of, most of us, meaning human beings, are feeding our families or ourselves, figuring out how to pay our mortgage or our rent, figuring out the barriers to healthcare, trying to find some source of entertainment and love and and excitement and inspiration in their daily lives and they don't have time to focus on a lot of this stuff now that's great it's a privilege to have the time that i have to focus on it and i hope i can do something with that and i hope i can make the world a better place and inspire people to make change and art and decisions that will improve the world in my own unique way but i have to be really careful tying this all together as i transition and trend down that I'm off the road now, and I don't need to have the megaphone up to my mouth all the time, and I can make change in really different ways, and I have to be careful not to be one of those people that we've now learned that we all were, like, for instance, leading up to the election, where we're so in our circle and so in our world, we forget that the average person is not watching eight hours straight of CNN, yeah. which isn't news, it's commentary. Right. They're well, just actually watching the news, which yeah. the nightly news, if you haven't watched it recently, is super interesting because it's nothing like what I'm reading online or nothing like the commentary news networks. It's this morning, President Trump was in Puerto Rico. This cat got stuck in a tree. And when we're back, we're going to be talking to... <laughs> Google Glass, you know, representatives. <laughs> this, this dry cleaner will not refund the, we're going to go solve that problem That's on it. tonight's news. That's it. And, and I'm like, yeah, so no wonder everyone's not walking around in a panic outside because they're not spending all day reading 
yeah about systemic racism and misogyny they're living it yeah but they're not on they're not in their privileged glass castle just reading about it and i i, I just i want to be careful yeah with how we respond yeah. and i want to be careful with the power and privilege we have because I don't want to take it for granted and I don't want to misuse it. I want to try to help and I want to still do my job, which is actually just being creative and inspired and making art that I hope is the soundtrack to people's lives and how to balance all of that in 2018 is, is a pretty um, big question that I hope that I find some reasonable answer to. In the short term, what are some things that are on the very loose calendar that you're looking forward to doing just in Tegan's life? Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to adopt a couple cats. Nice. Yeah. I've always wanted cats, and I, Sarah did it a couple years ago, took the plunge. Um, you know, we grew up with cats, so I think I'd like to putter about in my life with um, some fur witnesses. Um <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited about that. I'm excited yeah, you got to get a couple so that this way they have you can yeah. watch them interact with each other for hours of amusement. Totally. And when I head back out on the road in a couple of years, they'll have each other. My, you know, my girlfriend works not too much, so she's got normal hours. But I don't want the kitties to be alone. Um, you know, I'm going to try to take some vacations. All our parents are turning 60 this year, so we're you know taking some vacations with them and celebrating some normal life stuff. You know, yeah. all my every single person I've ever met has had a child, so I'm <laughs> going to meet them all. Yeah, I don't like rebuild that part of my life. Like I said to you in the last tapes, um, you get back from touring for two years and you you have to kind of like uh, sift through the rubble of your life and, and rebuild a bit, you know, because you've been away and adjust to being a muggle again and, and also um, build back your immunity. I mean, I've basically been injured or sick for two years, right? Because that's, that's what flying 17 times a month a month does to body, right? Yeah. So I, I'm, do, I'm right now I'm just trying to get well. Yeah. Um, but we've got a lot for the foundation on the horizon. So really focusing, we're about to announce all of our new board members. We've got a bunch of new board members. Um, really, really excited about that and the work that we can hopefully do with them. Um, and uh, that's in the short term. But we do have some some creative projects that we're you know we're, we're, like I know everyone has a podcast, and this is where Sarah and I's like shy, awkward neur neurosis comes in. Sarah's like. Everyone has one. We shouldn't do it. And I'm like, yeah, but not everyone should have one. And we're pretty fun and interesting. And we've had an interesting life. And maybe we could create something really cool. Like, and people are always, I mean, every, the, the three things people say to me when they meet me, like someone that doesn't know me, is, oh, my God, you're so much shorter. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't just because I'm on a stage. I'm really short. But I think I have, like, big dog energy, even though I'm a little dog. So, so oh, my God, I can't believe how short you are. You're so little. Um... I liked it better when you were acoustic, and I missed the stories. So if we can somehow take two of those things, the stories and, and the more stripped-down, you know, folksy part of ourselves, and turn that into something, whether it's, like I said, a podcast or a book or some creative adventures are definitely on the, on the near horizon. I just don't want to rush music. Um, and in the Lost Tapes, I told you this, too, and I, I, I think this is really interesting, and you should, um, you should be the go-between and ask Sarah what she thinks when you go talk to her. But... I like the idea of not passing music back and forth. I like the idea of writing like a big solid pile of music and then giving it to each other, like listening in a different way. Because I find that our way of passing back and forth music has, it doesn't necessarily work anymore. Like I'll send a song to Sarah and she'll write back, yeah, it's cool, but you know, that's, I need more. Like I want to really like blow her hair back and, um, and I worry I'm not giving her the feedback she needs and I wonder if I like wrote 20 songs and then like, bought her a CD player <laughs> and burned it onto CD because neither of us owned CD players and then like delivered it with like headphones or something. 
Right, she, so that you so that she doesn't power skim it or anything. Yeah, she like of. could sit with it and like yeah. really listen to it and see what she thinks. Like I just I want to like I want the the narrative about our new record whenever it comes out to be really unique and different, and I want the fans to know that we didn't just come home and write a record that we like lived and then and then we like put something together for them. I don't know. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Seems like a good note to end on. It does, yeah. We have not lost faith. <laughs> we, we will continue. Thank you, Tegan, Absolutely. so much My for pleasure. doing this. I'm going to quiz Sarah on all of what we just talked about. I can't wait. <laughs> After I left Tegan's, I headed back to the east side of L.A. to meet up with Sarah at her place in Silver Lake. And I started our conversation the same way I had with Tegan, by asking, just kind of generally speaking, what's been on her mind lately. I will say this, I think more than any other time in our career that I can remember, I have really no idea what Tegan and Sarah musically should do. And I don't mean that as like an existential crisis or like, oh my god, I just mean like I really don't have any instinct right now except to do nothing. I just feel, I feel like we should write and be creative and we think about music, we listen to music, we talk about music, but I have, my instinct is telling me that we shouldn't get any writing or recording on the books and that we should, um, that we should just like, I don't know, like soak up what's happening, maybe, maybe purge ourselves a little bit of what's happening and that is an extremely privileged place to be in to be able to say like I don't know like let's just take a break for a minute because um, I think every other point in our career I was either like I had no idea what I would do if I wasn't working I needed the money we were trying to capitalize on momentum like there was always some reason to keep going and it wasn't always necessarily even creative sometimes it was just like oh well we have to pay bills and this is how the cycle works and um I've been saying it's like sitting around out. I just want to like sit around out, see what happens in the next two years, and then we'll see what we can come back with that makes sense. Right. Um, in, in our 2007 conversation, when you guys were reflecting on how far you had come uh, since starting out at 14 and um, in terms of professionalism and, mm. and, and detail-oriented and just knowing how to do all of all of the stuff and uh and clearly you know you're both still interested in like always improving but looking back on you know from a creative perspective forget about the kind of professional conduct and this touring and that kind of thing just the impulse to make music and play songs I mean is there are there aspects of how you do that and how it makes you feel that always remind you of 14 year old you even when you're doing them now I mean what sort of kernel of the way you felt about music when you first started doing it, even amidst all the experience that you now have and, and skill mm. level that you now have, still feels... Such an interesting question, because the first thing that happens for me is that I feel like, on one hand, yes, I have all these tools and strategies and experience, but I still feel like the when I sit down and write music or think about music, I think I'm still working from exactly the same place and instinct and impulse that I did when I was 15 and wrote my first song. Like, I don't feel like I know anything more than I knew then about how it happens. Mm. Like, I don't know, I don't know how it happens. I mean, I'm sure there's actually probably some like actual like brain or mathematical explanation of like melody and why it comes out in the way that it comes out. But like when I sit down to write a song, I just know 
that I just want to do this thing or that thing and I start to make choices and it becomes like b- building blocks and I just it's, it's very visual for me mm. I, I don't like to write lyrics first I really like to put music together and I sort of I, I, I remember doing that as a teenager and it's almost identical I just have more tools and tricks and things now like right. I don't feel like I do anything different <laughs> than I did from um, 1995. <laughs> I mean, and do you, is the feeling you get when it's just when a song is going well in its early stage of development? Is, do, I mean, I feel like my senses are a little more dull right. than they used to be. You don't get as much of a rush from no. a new song. It's kind of like love or sex or something. Like, you keep been doing, making songs with myself for so long that it's pretty hard to get excited about me. I'm mm. a good, faithful, monogamous me, but I'm not necessarily like, you know? <laughs> I don't know how to, like, I definitely get excited, and I think that's why I still really long to partner, like, you know, people have asked us, like, why even have other people produce your music? And there's, there's like, a lot of answers mm-hmm. to that, but one of the most, um, I don't know, like, satisfying parts of working with a new team of people, like, whether it's just a single producer or even maybe a collaborative partner or a, you know, songwriter of some kind, is that I like chemistry, and mm-hmm. I feed off of chemistry, and I... Um, I don't look at a producer as like, you know, like, I don't think of Greg Kirsten as like my daddy who like helps me make songs because I'm like a little baby or something like that. I'm a grown woman who's an artist who has a bunch of creative ideas and I'm sitting in a room with somebody who is like smart and prodigious and interesting and complex and his ideas and my ideas create chemistry and that chemistry gets into the music and it makes me better at what I'm doing. And even in not just the ideas, but the supportiveness of someone who's aesthetic and opinion you trust as a, yeah. a, as a wall to bounce ideas off of is so important. For- Somewhere along the lines, like people made it seem like producers don't do anything except for like, like, or not, not do anything, but like that producers somehow make you not do anything. Right. Like they they're, do they're, everything. They're, yeah, yeah. It's weird. And I always try to explain, like, especially because my band and because of my creative relationship is always, you know, deeply connected to another person. I have no, I'm not, I'm not uncomfortable with sharing. I'm not uncomfortable with collaborating and producers are this wild west of ideas. They just, they come in with, they, that's all they think about are ideas and ways to help craft something. And, um, that chemistry is so exciting to me. And that's the only thing that keeps me still doing it because if it were just me alone writing music all the time, I probably, I'm a creative person, but I probably would have maybe spun off into other mediums. Like Mm. I, you know, I used to draw and do art all the time and I love to write and I love, I love to make music, but there's something about the collaborative energy that happens in music that keeps me going back. Cause I'm like, well, what, like who, who will be the next person I collaborate with? What will it be like to collaborate with them and spend time with them? What will we make? And that like really excites me. Um, one of the things that we talked about a bunch back in 2007 and that you talked about at length was about how the difference between the, your songs and Tegan's songs is impossible to explain mm. except that it's a different math equation mm. and how your songs are, you can, yeah. you can't really explain it, but your songs are a certain like kind of them. equation mm. mm-hmm. and her songs are a different kind of equation mm-hmm. and you could never mistake one of hers for one of yours because that's how like just fun- foundationally different they are to you <laughs> and you know Tegan was explaining that on Heartthrob for the, you know kind of the first time there was a, a style of collaboration between the two of you that was that was sort of new where even on one another's songs you would make efforts to each contribute yeah. even to the other person's song yeah um, and I wonder sort of how you feel like that you know how do, how well do you think that worked out and 
have you since 2007 developed a different way of looking at um, your sister's songs? I think that the answer is is definitely yes, that I, I, I think of Tegan's music differently. And I also think because of that more collaborative nature, while I still sort of think of them as like Tegan's songs, they're, because my ideas are have been more integrated in, in, in the last couple of records, the songs feel... They feel like hybrid Tegan songs. They don't... Like, when I think of, um, you know, something off of So Jealous or something off of The Con that Tegan wrote, I, I, I almost don't see myself or hear myself in any of that. But on the newer records, you know, I'll hear a song like, even like Closer, and I'm like, oh, I wrote that part, or oh, that, that little melody's mine. And so I can sort of... I can sort of... St- stake a claim even subconsciously I just like it just feels more like it's also my song even though it's not really my song but um I think so I think that's been really really cool and I think you know I was actually just at a uh, I was talking with this producer this morning about this fact that before Heartthrob Tegan and I never sang on each other's songs on, on on our albums like all of our albums our background vocals are our like if I'm singing lead, then I also sang all the background vocals. Mm. And often that was just sort of like comfort and time. Like I knew my songs and I knew which background vocals I wanted to be there and probably had more to do with our skill level than mm. our ability to just be able to work on the fly. And, um, it was just probably faster. I, I knew what I wanted. So I would go sing backups and harmonies to myself. And then heartthrob, we were started when we started working on heartthrob greg was like cool go ahead and do that but then he'd be like oh and i also have this harmony and this harmony and this harmony and i i was like should i do those and he's like why don't we get taken to do them that'll be a different texture like so he kind of like eased us into singing on each other's songs which like truly has so not interesting. been a thing it's so interesting because obviously you guys do and have for you know your entire lives done most everything together obviously yeah. now you're adults and you have separate lives but that that's this category where it's as separate as it is oh yeah so never was there never when you were first banging out songs and trying to write song after song as a as an early teenager you never sat together with the acoustic and the electric and were like let's jam and write no not even ever i mean i'm sure it didn't feel like it was gonna work at, at any point i think i think because our first instinct was to write individual songs and we did but we performed them together so we already knew um the challenge of compromise even just trying to sing on each other's songs and I think that probably was a bit of a barrier into like taking that relationship further it was sort of like um I mean a lot of our first songs were basically improv I mean they were like or not improv but like jams like we one night the song's one minute and the next minute you're drunk and or the next weekend you're drunk and it's seven minutes you know like I don't know like we it was pretty it's pretty random right but um Tegan knew my song she knew the main components of the song so she could sit in with me and she, maybe she'd double up on the chorus just come in or she'd like fiddle around on the guitar whatever it was so I think we were just like it was too early, I think, for us to really... I think it would have been too advanced to actually sit mm. down and write a song together. I think one of us just... Ha- it just had to be our song, and the other one was just backing up. I just right. think that's the way that it had to be. And then as we got older, um, I lived in Montreal, and Tegan lived in Vancouver. So, I mean, there was just actually, like, physical, not-close-to-each-other situation that we would never have navigated. We just were like, well, I'm over here writing songs, and I'll send you a CD, and it'll arrive four days later and you can listen to the songs and let me know what you think. Like we just didn't work in the same place. So, but it's not, you wouldn't say that it's a kind of 
at, you know, a realm of individuation for you, where it's like, well, we may be, we may look the same, and you may think of us in, as a unit, but uh, these are actually my songs. I think probably it's some of that. Yeah. I think, I think that's what made us. It's like it may seem the same, and you might not be able to tell for an outsider, but, I know but we know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, I don't exactly know how to articulate it, but I do think that the songs are so personal. Like, like when I think of like people sitting down to write a song together, to me there's like some kind of, like, like when I'm writing with myself, I feel transparent. I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. I owe no one an explanation. It's just what I want. But I think when you're sitting down and writing a song with another person, and I mean, Tegan and I have written together um, in recent years, it's weird. It's mm. weird to go, oh, I've got an idea for the chorus. Um, here it is, and here are the songs. Here's the lyrics, and here's the melody. And then everyone in the room is like, meh not into it and you, and it's like uh that doesn't feel good yeah what are you talking about what do you mean like it's it's very awkward and i mean i'm glad we do it t- from time to time and actually some of those ideas and some of those songs have been extremely strong and i feel really good about them but there's just something deeply satisfying about working alone yeah it's just nice yeah do you think that as a songwriter you you've made um you know, sort of more of a move to be more universal in your and your lyrics as you've gotten older. I mean, I, my instinct when we started getting feedback like that was to deny it and say like, no, it's not. But I mean, I think as you get older, your filter does change. Like, I mean, whether you recognize it or not, like when I was 16, the way that I processed my feelings and spoke out loud about things, I'm sure is extremely different than the way that I did at 25 and now that I do at 37. So what feels very... Um, raw and and exposed to me at 37 I'm sure doesn't seem that universal when compared to something I wrote when I was 26 because my filter was different and um so I still feel like my intention is to be very transparent and emotional and raw um I definitely don't think to myself when I'm writing something like is this universal I never right ask myself that question um Mostly I ask, lately I've just been like, does this make any kind of sense? Mm. Like, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of poeticism to, to a lyric and then there's just incoherent babbling, you know, like I definitely will work on a song for like a couple of weeks and then when it's done, I'm like, this doesn't, this isn't about anything. The story is bad, you know, like it's, so I like throw it away. Um, when I was younger, I would have just been like, if you didn't get it, I just would have been like, well, you don't get it. Like, you know, now I definitely have more of a like, well, if I send it to Tegan and my best friend and I play it for my girlfriend and no one gets it, it might be me. Right. Like it might be me. When when you hit on one that's undeniably a good one, I mean, and looking back on, you know, songs you've written throughout your career, is there an uncanny kind of feeling that you get when you know that that combination of the melody and the lyric and the way of saying something is, you know... I like think something so. Something like a walking with a ghost or something where you're like, wow, that's really, yeah. okay, that's a, that, I, that, that was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it happens. Yeah. It, it does happen. And, but, but just because it, I, what I've told myself is just because it doesn't happen doesn't mean you haven't right. got something. Right. That's too easy. That's yeah. too easy because I think what I've realized in life and not just like from our own band, but just from being alive and seeing shit like really flop in other people's lives like whether it's records or movies or books or whatever it is um sometimes you think you've got something fucking golden and people put bazillions of dollars behind it and it fails like what's that 
you know, I think it was David Mamet who wrote about that, like about if there was actually a way to tell if a film was going to be a hit, you wouldn't have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and these crappy films that just completely um, bomb. There's actually really no way to tell or to know. And so I think of it as the reverse, like that sometimes I have stuff that sort of feels middling, but I can't, I can't get it out of my mind. And I kind of keep wanting to go back to it. It might not be the first thing. It doesn't necessarily show up in my like manager, sister, like ecosystem of listeners. It won't be like the top 10 song, but like I'll just keep going back to it and thinking like, there's something there, there's something there. And that instinct is more important to me than the like people that when people respond big, like if people respond big, I'm like, yeah, duh, I know. Right. But I, what I'm more interested in is the stuff that, I don't know, they're the deep cuts that will mean more to people later on, I think. Right. Do you, do you feel like you've learned stuff or that you learn stuff about Tegan by just hearing a song that she wrote on her own? And, and I mean, or is it is it difficult to try and analyze <laughs> I mean, them that way? I mean, I definitely feel like sometimes I will be really like wow what's going on with her or whatever they're mostly what I think is like oh here we go like you know (laughs) that's more of my take a lot of the times like um how how in what ways have you gotten better at being in a band uh together over the years I mean I don't know this this might not be like the most appropriate analogy but not unlike I think a marriage where Okay, like I'm watching the Queen or the 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 Crown right now. Have you watched season two? I haven't. No. Okay, so I mean, a lot of the thing with the whole Queen, especially back then, is like you don't marry the Queen and then get a divorce. Like, there's no divorce, <laughs> and like that's not even a thing that exists. Um, and it's really funny because I feel that way about Tegan, and I don't mean just because we're sisters. I mean like there is no divorce for me and Tegan. There just isn't. And um, I think in some weird way. In adolescence, I started in our, it started in adolescence and then it really uh, it really got bad in my early 20s, but I started to realize that I couldn't I couldn't divorce her. I couldn't be apart from her. And I don't think that made me a very good partner or band partner and I'm taking responsibility for my portion of it. There was lots of stuff she could take responsibility for too. but I think that was part of it. I felt very trapped and very caged and very. I, I couldn't necessarily see the good things in, in what we had. And I think that now in my 30s, I just, I just feel at peace with it. I, I, I feel really lucky and I like her and I have my space and I get my own life. I like our band. I feel proud of what we've accomplished. I feel proud of what we've overcome. I think even through our worst times, we would never have, cho- like, we would never have made a choice um, for somebody else or for something else or for our career over the other person. Like no matter how bad it got, I was gonna I was gonna put Tegan first and choose Tegan first over anything else. And I think that um, that saved us probably from like breaking up and the breaking up the band and not being in each other's life. Right. Yeah, Tegan mentioned though that maybe there's that you guys are talking about maybe you'll do a podcast. Yeah, I think which I think is a fantastic idea because you're yeah. both hilarious. <laughs> I my my Tegan said this really funny thing because we've been sort of like going back and forth about like we'll just get an idea for a podcast and I'll send it to her or whatever. Um, I think it, I think she said something to me over the Christmas holidays like we were kind of batting around an idea and she was like let's just be honest the only people we want to hear talk. Are ourselves like we don't want to do like <laughs> I, having guests yeah we were like they don't need a guest no we don't care about listening to other people talk <laughs> um yeah I think the big fear I have about anything like extra like music podcasts 
books, like all the things that everyone in our age group is doing right now. Um, I just don't want to make something to make something. Mm-hmm. I want to, if, if we're going to do something, I sort of have that competitive feeling of like, well, if we're going to do it, then we need to do it in a way that nobody's done it. Or we need to do it in a way that is, is like, is us. Like, you're not just going to go, um, oh, Tegan and Sarah are, you know, like press record and they yeah. Just and yeah. Like I don't want to just do that because, um, there are just too many people who do that well. And, and that's not necessarily what I think would be our, what would be our thing. So I'm just like, we're still, we're just like every day we just like send each other things. Like we've had so many, it's kind of like how we also have all these ideas for TV shows, even though I hate, I don't want to be on TV, but we have all these funny ideas because we are so like some musicians just, that's all they think about is music. I almost envy them at the single-mindedness of it. Like, it's just beautiful. And I just am always like, what else can I do? Like, Tegan and I want to start a consulting firm where we go into, like, the airport, like, to a particularly bad airport or, like, a postal office, and we just work there for a month, and we just organize it, and we just come up with strategies to make it function better, and then we just leave. (laughs) So nerds for admin, basically. basically, It's all admin, and it's all about, like... (laughs) redundancy and organizing and I just because we spend so much time in places that are so poorly run I just feel like we can do it better right and then I also have this idea for a show kind of like the property brothers on HDTV but Tegan and I go to venues all over America and we renovate their backstages yeah for a budget like I just have all these ideas that I think we could just make things better well I want to be like the indie rock like like Oprah for for like, like hell you, you want know, to do like Hell's for, Kitchen but for venues exactly <laughs> exactly like I just and it doesn't have to be expensive like there's just like you spend I've spent the majority of my life in clubs and theater basements across America Europe and Canada and I just feel like I could make it better oh yeah I believe you could you know just like I don't know just like a weird consulting thing so any anything that any project that we talk about I just. It's fun to talk about it, but until we really like hit that golden idea, I just don't feel ready to commit. But the podcast thing, I think, could be interesting just because um, we already have a built-in audience who likes to hear us talk. Um, I don't know what that says about them, but um, I do think it could be fun. I just have to figure out how not to make it something that Tegan and I are annoyed at each other about. You know? Right, yeah. right, right. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess the whole point of, of keeping the calendar open is to just... Yes. For the first time. Yeah. Give yourself enough space to see what really, yeah. what really makes sense, what really resonates as a, mm-hmm. as a thing to do. Yeah. So until the thing that seems like the obvious choice comes into focus, what, yeah. what are, what are you going to do the next <laughs> few months or so? What do you, what's, what's on the, what's on the actual dry erase calendar or whatever? <laughs> Mostly hosting people because as soon as I told people that we weren't touring and we had nothing on the calendar, everybody comes to visit. So it's like pretty much every weekend from now until April, we have something with somebody. So a lot of like family and friend time, like really thoroughly catching up with everybody and uh, stuff to do with the Tegan and Sarah Foundation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Tegan already covered all of this, but um, we have a bunch of really exciting stuff coming up and the truth is, is that as much as we want to like give space in our lives um, to think about and figure out what we want to do with the Tegan and Sarah side of things, the foundation could we could that could be a full time thing. And um, I think for me, it'll be about man not not jumping in a hundred percent full time because I would like to have some space for other areas in my life. But um, to make that our number one priority right now feels very exciting. It's so rewarding, and you know I was thinking about how. 
right now when I hear political music, it makes me feel irritated because I, I sort of feel not irritated, irritated is wrong. I feel like it's not going the whole way. Like Mm. I right now feel like part of the, the trouble with our, our sort of political citizen is that we think if we retweet something, we've done something. We think if we like something, we've done something. We think if we say something, we've done something, but I really believe in this sort of method methodology and it's complex and you, you have to sort of like, it's, it just is what you do every day. You live it mm-hmm. all the time. And yeah. I think, um, I think right now I'm like excited to spend a year a hundred percent focused on the foundation in that part of my life, just so that I feel like I, I, I put my money where my mouth is. Like, it's easy for me to be like, Oh, isn't it great to retweet, you know, but okay, well, what am I doing besides yeah. that? You know? And I, I feel excited to sort of get more into the action. And I think the foundation for us is sort of, that is that has been our trajectory it started it started in a really sort of like simple place you know 15 years ago but this is where we've arrived which is sort of um okay we we want to raise money and there are people out there doing amazing things and then like here are the gaps and let's go find money that is not normally like like here are the places where money never comes from like let's go tap those people to fill some of these gaps i don't want to take money from um the lgbtq donors that are out there right now i mean on the regular each year you know it's increasing every year especially right now um i know with like trans rights and that's like we there's been like an influx of donations that are coming into certain organizations and that's increasing the annual um you know donation that you know, is, is, is sort of targeted to the LGBTQ community, but like, I don't want to go after that money. That money is there and it's, it's doing what it needs to do, but I am definitely interested (laughs) in the places where there is lots of money and the money is not going traveling from those places to these, um, to these communities and to these gaps in these communities. And yet our communities are the ones who often most directly impact some of these companies and some of these industries, for example, music. I mean, you're queer and you discover a band or, you know, the music community in general, you're more, I, there's statistics. You are more committed than the average straight folk because it's like, this is your universe. This is your world. And, you know, you think about artists, especially in history that have had huge queer followings. I mean, though that audience is devoted and oh, yeah. they, um, to me, it's like in the entertainment industry, there is lots of money that goes to, um, to queer causes, I think predominantly male, like get to, to male causes, but um, which just makes sense, especially with um, the history of HIV and AIDS and the, and the connection to the to the music industry. But it's it's time, like it's time for our industry to say, like, oh, we want to do some more meaningful stuff, and not not like reactive stuff, but like proactive stuff. And it doesn't always seem like the most obvious, but we are. I think Tegan and I are good at making the connection between things that don't seem obvious initially, like. For some of the music industry folks that we hit up um, about this stuff, they listen to us go on and on about the benefit of like an LGBTQ mentorship camp for adults, and they go, "Sounds great. What do you like? What does that have to do with me?" And it's like, well, there's lots of ways. There's lots of entry points for people who work in the music industry to connect with those mentorship camps. And you're talking about a music industry where there's like a lack of women in upper management, a lack of queer women, and a lack of women of color, and all of these things. Well, here is a here is a here is a group of people who are engaged in mentorship and leadership and they're 
queer women and women of color and trans youth and they are dying for mentors they're dying for people to come to them and you know give them skills and exchange life experience and that's a great way to um to encourage your staff at these big companies to get involved like just like make it make a connection you don't necessarily just have to do the same things you've always been doing you can start to get involved in other areas and i think um that's exciting too. Giving people tools and strategies to be better is always, I think, um, the most effective way to get people to change. And um, while I like to shame people occasionally, I, I'm not 25 anymore. I would rather, you know, have that awkward conversation where I say, you've now used lesbian nine times and I just wanted to let you know that I prefer queer, but I mean, it's okay if you want to use it, but just like, if you're going to write that that many times in the article, could you just use queer a few of those times? And I know it kills the person. I know it makes them uncomfortable, like they stepped in shit. But young me would have just let it go. And now I'm just like, well, if you're going to fucking write all about it, you might as well use the word I like. Yeah, and I mean, and I guess it seems like, and I'm hopeful that people will, going forward, be more and more open to hearing those kinds of... They are. That kind of feedback... Because it's not a, it's not, you know, it's not a judgment when you say that to someone, it's just, it's helpful. It's helpful because, you know, we all know how we see ourselves and no one else knows that until we tell them, you know, and uh, I don't know if you saw, I mean, I mean, it's kind of a bad person to bring up, but like, I actually thought it was very interesting when we did Charlie Rose because Mm. we referred to ourselves as queer a few times and he, in the middle of the interview was like, so let's talk about this word. Why do you like to be defined as queer and I was like what a mind fuck to be on Charlie Rose this is pre yeah pre what pre, we know now. pre the whole thing but I had watched Charlie Rose for like 15 years and I'm like I'm on Charlie Rose explaining why the word lesbian sounds clinical and it was a word that was used to oppress women who were gay and I don't like it or identify with it and I'm queer and I'm like talking about that on Charlie Rose. That's awesome. And I was like, this is so crazy. And I didn't think he, he didn't feel bad. He wasn't like, oh no. Again, weird guy to bring up right well, now. Well, it's but... unfortunate. It's unfortunate in an example like that, <sighs> that some of, some people who turn out to be horrible I know. are still very skilled at, at the thing that made them famous enough for us to care if they're yeah. horrible. It was you know, no- Louis C.K. or whoever, yeah, where yeah, yeah. it's like, that's good, you know, that's a good quest. It's good. He's a good journalist, Charlie He Rose, leaned into and- something that a lot of people would have avoided. Right. He would have just been thinking like, wow, they're using queer a lot. That's a bit odd. <laughs> like, back in the day, he sure didn't want to be called that. You know, like, you could see it really all over his face that he was like, caught off guard and he was like I'm gonna lean into that and I, genuine I curiosity totally yeah for not for him just for himself but I'm sure the the majority demographic that is watching that show I think that was probably a really interesting um question and answer and discourse that ended up happening and one of the things that I feel again feel like I'm more comfortable with than I ever was is is saying that and also saying like I say shit wrong all the time I get it wrong all the time. I love having the social circle that I have and the and the work circle that I have because I am not afraid to surround myself by people who tell me when I get it wrong. I'm not. I want to be told. I want to be told and then I will go and figure it out and I won't do that again. Yeah, you want to yeah, you get better. I'm like how many to- how many times did we did we make people feel alienated or like they weren't welcome because maybe we just by not even acknowledging something or talking about something. Mm. And you know, one of the big things with the foundation that we um, that we're sort of like ongoing interested in um, is I, 
safer spaces. Everyone's always talking about safer spaces. How do you really make a safe space um, when you are in your tour bus or your backstage area and the audience is like, they're out there, you know? And we hear all the time from our fans, like, that they're, you know, um, that there are, there are always security outside of bathrooms. You don't really think about that if every time you walk into the bathroom, you know that you look like you're supposed to be in the gendered bathroom that you're in. Well, for a lot of our audience, there's a lot of masculine-identified lesbians or trans guys or whatever. So we get a lot of feedback about that. And I never... About how the security... How, might... A lot of times security stands outside of bathrooms. Not right. because they're policing the bathrooms. I just think that's like a place to stand or that's a place where things get congested. And so we've started asking venues, please don't put security in your bathrooms. It makes our, when there are, when there is not a gen, all gender restroom and there is like, there is just gendered restrooms. We ask that security doesn't stand near them. Right. It makes people uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. Whenever possible, please don't separate the security line into men and women for a multitude of reasons. A, there's way less men. So don't make someone choose. Don't make someone choose. Don't make someone choose. All the way in. And if they're going to have to choose... We want to know in advance so that we can say, like, this is actually a state law. They have to do this. We're going to make sure that there are extra, you know, women on hand. Because they always have male security guards and, like, one female security guard. So you've got the, like, 30% of the audience that showed up is male. And they have all the security staff. And they showed up way later. It's, like, the 100 girls who were sitting on the street for nine hours. And they are waiting for, like... Betty to like clear them to go through security so there's like you know like the back of the hand pat down interesting exactly <laughs> but so all of these things like there's a million of them but like we started to put together this toolkit from having a really queer and female audience where it's like a lot of venues are not designed to make people feel comfortable they're designed to make you feel uncomfortable and destabilized and it, it's like when did the, when did going to a concert become the TS waiting in the lineup at TSA at the airport yeah like, no and I have that experience sucks. too as a 40 something year old woman who's been going to shows for half my life and I know how to do it yeah. and a security person gets aggressive with me and, and condescending and, and scary and I feel my heart start racing I think like how is this like how must a kid feel you know I'm like an old pro at this who's like no I can go over there this is the right wristband yeah. <laughs> don't yell at me please <laughs> but yes. like if you're a kid you know and you're just trying to enjoy a... and now you what if you're and what if you're what if you're like a trans kid or you're you know or you're um you know your your gender presentation doesn't necessarily you know match with your sex or whatever it is like and I and and I say these things and I, I know that some, for some people they're like, mm, how many people really is that? And it's like, it's millions. So does it matter to you that it's millions? Because it is. Like, we're not talking about like 150 people. Like, we're talking about impacting the lives of millions of people who go to see concerts. Not just our concert. Like, Coachella or, mm -hmm. you know, festivals or, or hockey games or whatever it is. Like, I mean, this is a way right. of thinking and a way of being sensitive. And it's it's interesting too because... I mean, as a learning point for us, like we just did this whole tour where we sort of did like a very like baseline trial run of this. So like at, at least um, one bathroom at every show on our tour had to be like an all gender bathroom. We did the staffing, um, you know, protocol every day. We sat with the security and it was always awkward, but you know, we would explain these things, which that's not the ideal time to do this. We're talking about programs that th this would be a toolkit and these would be, um, you know, these would be trainings that happen long before mm -hmm. you show up. So we show up and we're kind of like, hey, quick note about a couple things. Like, you know, it's, you're not getting 100% 
out of these people who are kind of like, what the fuck are they going on about? But I did overall feel like the venues were great. There was a real willingness to um, talk about these things with us. And then I, I, and I think the interaction with the audiences night to night were really positive. So it was very interesting to me on the last night of the tour, second last night of the tour, um, we have a guy who works with us who's gay and he uh, left the venue. We were in the, we were in the main lobby. We were setting up, doing stuff. He was going back to the hotel to shower. He walked outside and there was a gentleman on the street who was obviously somewhat mentally unstable and there was the big lineup of kids and he was kind of like leering around and I don't know, just like being like generally troubling. Sketch, a little sketch. And Jeremy was like, you know, I saw him and I kind of overheard and he was using all these like derogatory words and then he kind of saw me and before I really even knew what was happening, he pushed me and I almost fell and then I was like, hey, what are you doing? And he was called me a faggot and he's like, so I turned around and I came back into the venue because there was a police officer who was, um, who was security for the venue and he had, he was in the security meeting and he was in the lobby and Jeremy went into the lobby and said, this is what just happened. Um, I'm fine, but that guy is still out there with all those kids. Um, and the police officer said, words don't hurt people, and maybe you should stay out of people's way. And Jeremy reported him to us, and we had to have him removed from the, from the venue. And the thing that was so unsettling to me, because I was like, okay, whatever, they'll get a different security person. But then it was like, that night, while I was on stage, I knew we were going to be at the venue again the next day, and I felt so afraid. Like, I thought to myself, maybe we shouldn't have said something till we were done the shows. And what if he comes back? And what if he's mad at us? What if he tries to attack us? Mm. What if what if he goes crazy because mm. he lost? Did we make him lose his job? Was that too much? Did we do something wrong? Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I spent two days thinking about. And all that guy had to do was be like, oh, my God, are you okay? I'll go out there and deal with him. But it was like, by the time we left... That venue two days later, I felt like we were the bad people because we had said like, this is not, how can you have this guy be the first face that all these kids are going to see? And he doesn't care that one of our staff has been pushed on the street and called a faggot outside of the venue. I, and all I kept thinking was I'm the band that sold out two nights at this venue. I'm the one that I have arguably the most power. So how hard is it for a kid entering a venue who gets treated like shit or gets called a name or gets misgendered or gets kicked out of a bathroom, how do they feel going and reporting that police officer or that security person? And if I feel scared and if I feel afraid and I'm the one who has all the security, I had a security, we had a full-time security detail (laughs) who I was like, don't leave my side. You know, like I had a full-time security officer with me who I was able to share my fear with. Like, oh my God. And she was just like, you, it's fine. You're blowing this man in proportion. <laughs> but like, that's the fear that I felt. What does that, what does that kid who comes into the venue feel or yeah. in any space where they have to tell a teacher or a police officer or a whatever? Like I think about the powerlessness that most people feel in their life and the fear most people ignore or hide or whatever. And it's just, if I can do anything to at least impact the venues and the space, the communal spaces that we're all in, that's going to be what most people deal with. Not, not a thank God, not a terrorist attack or some horrible act of violence. Most people are going to be dealing with those kind of microaggressions that might change how you feel about music or how you feel about a band. Yeah. You know? But the educational part, a lot of this information for a long time was very difficult to find. 
like the ed- education around you know queer identities and yep. all these kinds of things it's not the easiest stuff it's not like they've been like should I read Gone Girl or should, should I, I read, read Queer Judith Theory, yeah, like, theory. Like, <laughs> there's like there was like a real like gap for a long time so I, I have empathy for that or like if you wanted to see you're not gonna like accidentally come upon gay people or gay narratives or gay stories or history even now you know in some parts of the world so it's like it's, it's, I'm, I'm happy to be a bit of a like vehicle for some of that stuff like when 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 people are willing to hear it and receive it so um it'll be interesting to see how I don't want to I, I never want to write about this music like musically like so maybe some time off will give us some time to discharge some of it so right. that we can get back to making music that is just like uh, just like vain and emotional and whatever <laughs> like that's why I make music I don't make music to be political the rest of my life is a ne- neurotic bundle of <laughs> politics so music is the only time I get to just like jerk off you know <laughs> so well I, I I hope you enjoy your time <laughs> off but I can't wait for uh, more jerking off thank you um <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll I'll let us wrap up on that note thank you so much Sarah oh, for having me over to do this and uh, yeah let us know how we can help oh yeah I definitely If you want to find out more about the Tegan and Sarah Foundation, head on over to teganandsarahfoundation.org. And thanks so much to Tegan Quinn and Sarah Quinn for making the time to do the LSQ podcast. Thanks as well to Piers Henwood from their management for helping to facilitate. And big thanks to you for listening. If you don't already subscribe, I hope you'll do so. And I'm told that it's helpful if you leave a rating or a review. So, hey, that'd be sweet as well. Uh, And new episodes are actually going to begin arriving every three weeks instead of every four weeks. Uh, So episode five is just another few weeks away. And I'm going to do something a little bit different where uh, it'll include two interviews with kind of up-and-coming artists. You'll hear my conversation with Aaron Main of the New York band Porches, who recently put out an excellent new album called The House. Plus, episode five will have my interview with a fascinating dude named Jonathan Wilson, who does pretty much everything. He's a singer-songwriter, producer, he's currently touring as a guitarist with Roger Waters, and he's just, like I say, a really interesting guy. So look for that in episode five, and thanks so much for listening. You can always reach me with feedback, which I would definitely love to hear, uh, on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. LSQ.